0: We've been doing an exposition of John for a while now, and we are now at John seven. So I'd like to invite you to turn there with me, John chapter seven. And uh, we began this chapter, in John seven, a uh, couple three weeks ago. And thank you to Paul who the past two weeks filled in uh, for me. And, uh, did uh, served you well uh, teaching through the book of Haggai. The past two weeks. So thank you. Uh, Paul. So we're in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, and you'll remember that this chapter comes in a larger section in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5 through chapter 12. And in these chapters, the opposition uh, is growing towards Jesus. That's one of the main themes of these chapters. He's just been abandoned in mass after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. His Galilean ministry is virtually over. And now in John 7, the great feast of the Booths, this Jewish feast, a massive feast, um, is at hand. We learned last time, we were in verses 1 through 13, how Jesus' brothers urge him to go up to this feast, to show himself off, to perform some spectacular signs, and win a large following of disciples for himself. His brothers perceive that his ministry is on the brink of ruin. Most of his disciples have abandoned him at this point. And so they reason that Jesus needs to go up to Jerusalem, do something spectacular. If you're going to be something, if you're going to be regarded as anything other than an out-of-the-way rural preacher in Galilee, you need to win the capital. You've got to go to Jerusalem and win some disciples for yourself. At this Feast of booze, Jews from all over the Roman world would be pouring into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. It was the ideal place to go up, perform some spectacular signs, and win a following. But John tells us that his brothers say this because even they did not truly believe in Jesus. They, just like the crowd, had signs faith. They saw his signs, they were impressed by his miracles, but they failed to look beyond the signs to his person and his work, what the signs were meant to teach. His brothers crave human praise, they they crave human glory, and they set an agenda for him. They saw a misunderstanding of his mission, what he's about, and a misunderstanding of the condition of the world. And so Jesus responded to them, Telling them that his time, that is his appointed time to go up to this feast, has not yet arrived. Jesus cannot go up to this feast in the timing or in the manner of his brothers. He is on a specific mission given to him by the Father. We're going to see that his mission is ordained down to the very hour. His mission consists in teaching. He's not come to be a sign worker. He's come ultimately to be crucified. But before then, his primary goal is teaching. He refuses to go up to Jerusalem to win human praise. He's been sent with a message. And Beyond that, the world, before whom the brothers want Jesus to display himself, the world hates Christ. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. When he goes up, he's not going to win the favor of the world. He's going to win the favor of his father. And when he goes up and speaks the word he does, the world will hate him. Why? Because he exposes their sin. Look what it says. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the brothers go up to the feast with this large caravan of Jewish travelers, multitudes pouring into Jerusalem, but Jesus stays behind in Galilee. But then, later, in his timing, he goes up to the feast in private. He's avoiding those who would be bombarding him for signs. He's avoiding those who are seeking to put him to death. He goes quietly and privately up to Jerusalem so that he can teach unhindered, In the temple. And before he gets there, you'll notice in verses 10 to 13, there's already these mixed opinions about him. The Jewish leadership is already plotting his death. Others of the people are saying that he's a false teacher, that he's a deceiver. And still others are saying that he's simply a good man. And yet none of them are getting him right. None of them recognize him as the Messiah, none of them are receiving his teaching. And underneath it all is verse 13. Look what it says. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Underlying all their unbelief is a fear of man, a desire to maintain the approval of the world more than the approval of God. And that theme is just going to dominate this whole section as we'll see this morning. Well, that brings us to our section now. Um, so last week it was uh, entitled Jesus Ascent to the Feast of Booths. Now we get Jesus during the middle of the feast. Verse 14 says about the middle of the feast. The feast lasted about seven to eight days. Jesus is now come at the middle of the feast of Booths. We don't know just exactly when he came to Jerusalem. We know he didn't come up with the multitudes. But now it's the middle of the feast, and he goes into the temple to do one thing. Look at verse 14. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. We're also not told specifically what Jesus was teaching. If we've been tracking with John so far, we have a good idea probably what it included. The necessity for the new birth. The guilt of sin, the need for repentance and spiritual cleansing, the nature of his person as Messiah and divine Son of God, the gift of eternal life. And what will follow in these verses in response to his teaching are the responses of three groups of people. So, verses 14 to 24, what we're going to tackle this morning, we hear the crowd. Verses 25 to 31, the Jerusalemites, the people from Jerusalem. Then verses 32 to 36, the Jewish leadership. And all three groups of people reject him. So we could put a subtitle to the section, verses 14 to 36, three reasons for the rejection of Messiah. These three groups of people all reject Christ. In each of these sections, Christ is going to put his glory on display, and when he does, the world will respond with rejection, with hatred. This morning, we're just going to cover verses 14 to 24, which focuses on the crowd, the failure to perceive the divine source of Jesus' teaching. So here's Jesus sitting in the temple, teaching. Crowds of people, pilgrims from all over the Roman world um, are packed in listening to him teaching, and they're absolutely astonished. Look at verse 15. It says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They've never heard anything quite like this teaching. He's teaching as one with authority and not as their scribes, to use the words of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. But what is it that is so amazing for him? It says they were astonished because he was teaching... As one I'm sorry they said how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied it's literally how does this one know his letters having never studied now it's not speaking about education in general it's not talking about his alphabet um, some translations kind of make it sound that way he has general learning that's not what they're talking about. This word, grammata, or letters, refers to the Old Testament scriptures. They're astonished that Jesus has such mastery of the Old Testament scriptures, such command over the Old Testament scriptures. He has been teaching in such a sustained manner of the Old Testament as a master rabbi. But it wasn't just amazing, if that wasn't just amazing enough, Jesus, they perceive, has never studied. That is, he's never been under formal rabbinic training. Never been under a specific rabbi. He's teaching as an expert rabbi without any rabbinical training, and they're absolutely astonished at that. And we could just stop here and gaze on the glories of, of Christ right at this moment. He teaches with absolute clarity, authority, Power, conviction, purity, wisdom, truth, and not contradicting the Old Testament in a single point. Flip over to chapter 7, verse 46. Look at how some people speak of him. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. It's the glory of Christ on display. And it is to these words that the people respond Amazement, And then, in in response to their amazement, Jesus grounds the credibility of his teaching in its alignment with God's will. So we just saw in verses 14 to 15 that the crowd is astonished at his knowledge of the scriptures without any rabbinic training. Now, we need to understand that this astonishment is not entirely positive. It's not totally a good thing that they're astonished at him. You see, the way rabbis taught was by constantly appealing to tradition of what previous rabbis taught. They would teach by quoting other rabbis who taught by quoting other rabbis. They did not prize originality. They would have viewed a person teaching the scriptures independent from established tradition as arrogant and lacking credibility. So they had a system which was set up in order to perpetuate tradition. This rabbi taught this, he taught this, he taught this. Rabbi taught by grounding all of his teachings in the words of rabbis so and so. This crowd is not just blown away by his ability, they also question his learning. Because it sounds like it's completely independent from established tradition. So they question if he's not indeed some arrogant upshot who has come with his own independent interpretation of Scripture and his own independent message. That's why they're astonished, primarily. Where did he get this teaching? doesn't sound like it's from any rabbi. And so Jesus responds in these verses by declaring that his words are very credible, even more credible than any of their rabbis. And he's not guilty of arrogance or self-glory seeking. But notice what he says. He, he does not say, hey, I'm God in the flesh here. I don't need a teacher. This is my teaching. That's not what he says. Look what he says in verse 16. He explains that the source of this teaching is the Father who sent him. Verse 16 says, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me? We learned back in chapter 5 that Jesus is the divine Son of God, which means he's fully equal with the Father in deity, and yet he is completely dependent on and submissive to his Father as the divine Son. And it is the same here. He never speaks a word which the Father did not first give to him. He's not come with his own message. He's not claiming to have had no teacher. Rather, he's coming as one who's been taught from his Father, even God. That's quite a claim. The Father sent Jesus on a mission with words. Now, you might be thinking, well, Michael, couldn't any of the Old Testament prophets have said that, right? They all got a message from God, didn't they? It's true. In one sense, yes, they received the very words of God, and they spoke it. And yet, the Old Testament prophets spoke very differently from Jesus, didn't they? How did the Old Testament prophets speak? They said, thus says the Lord. But Jesus came saying, truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus speaks with absolute authority. He speaks with the same authority as God the Father, and he deserves the same honor as God the Father. And yet he does so with complete dependence on God the Father for the words he's given to him. Well, that now leads us to verses 17 to 18, in which Jesus explains that the prerequisite to knowing the source of his teaching is a faith commitment to God's will. So Jesus just made this outstanding claim Um, My words are the words of God the Father who gave them to me. How does Jesus expect any to believe him? It's quite a claim. I mean, his teaching is astonishingly different from anything that people have ever heard before. It rings with purity and truth. But how can he expect people to just buy into his claim that his teaching is from God and not of his own making? Well the issues found in the second half of verse 17. Look what it says. The focus is on source. Look at this. He will know whether the teaching is from God, or whether, it's literally whether I am speaking from myself. So that's the question. Where does this teaching come from? Is it from God or is it from himself? To speak a message from yourself means that it was produced from yourself. Based on your own authority and for your own glory. We're going to come back to that in just a minute, but just note these are the two options. Either Christ is speaking from God or he's speaking from himself. But notice also that Jesus tells us here that his claim is actually obvious and should be easily affirmed as true. Look at the beginning of verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority. Jesus says it should be plain, the source of my teaching, but something is required of those who hear. There's nothing lacking in Christ's words to demonstrate their credibility. What is lacking is what is in the hearts of the people hearing him. His words, just like all of scripture, are self-authenticating. It means they prove themselves to be, they demonstrate themselves to be the very words of God. What is lacking is the necessary heart condition of his hearers. Look at verse 17 again. He says, if one should desire to do his desire, then he will know concerning my teaching where it comes from. In other words, fundamental to knowing and receiving Jesus' teaching from God is a heart which longs for and desires that God's will be done. Only these kind of people receive Jesus' words as they really are. So as the Jews continue to reject him, as they continue to stiff-arm him, they make it clear they do not have hearts. They think they do. They do not have hearts which truly desire to do God's will. And Jesus is going to objectively demonstrate this at the end of our passage. So it's building to this crescendo. But before we get there, let's just consider this a little bit more. What does it mean to be a person who desires to do God's desire? What does that mean? In the context of Jesus' ministry, it referred to a person with a true faith commitment to God's word, the Old Testament scriptures. They were people of faith. They were people who trusted God's promises. They repented of sin. They submitted to God's law in their hearts. And they trusted in him for mercy. He was a true Old Testament saint. It was a true Israelite. And we've already encountered these people a few times in John. Flip back to John chapter 3. In verse 21, Jesus mentions the same category of people here. John 3, 21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So where do these people come from? Well, they come from God's work in his sovereign work, what are they characterized by? They're characterized by doing what is true. What does that mean? It means it's a faith commitment to truth which permeates one's life. They trust the scriptures. And their lives are conformed around the scriptures. Flip back to John chapter 1, verse 17. Nathaniel, Look what Jesus says about him. Sorry, not John 1, 1, uh, 37. I believe from the uh, wrong, wrong verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. A true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, the motivations of Nathanael were pure. He wasn't coming to Christ with mixed motives. He was a true Israelite. And the same idea is here. In John 7, they desire to do God's desire. In other words, fundamental to receiving Christ's words as they are is a heart that's been changed. A heart that loves and delights in God's will. And those who don't have this kind of heart may act religious. They may pretend to love God's word, but deep down they do not have any alignment with God's word. And so when they come in contact with Christ's words, which so perfectly expresses God's will, what do they do? They bolt. It's not what accords with their nature. They hate it. It's contrary to them. This is not just true of Old Testament saints in the time of Jesus. A receiving of his words as the very words of God is still what characterizes true believers. Flip with me over to 1 Thessalonians really quickly, chapter 2. What does it mean to be a Christian? Among other things, it means you're a person who receives the words of Christ and the words of his apostles as the very words of God. If you don't do that, you're not a Christian, according to Jesus and according to Paul. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The same phenomenon going on in the time of Christ is also going on through his apostles. When people hear his word, the words of his apostles, they receive it as the very words of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And fundamental to this is a divine work of grace in the heart, which transforms the heart to desire to do God's desire. Let's look a little bit more closely here at verse 17. This faith commitment enables people to discern the content of the teaching. So a teacher is either speaking from himself or he is speaking from God. So Jesus says, and those who desire to do God's will are able to discern the teaching. Well, how? Because it is either in accord with or it contradicts what he's revealed in Scripture, in the Old Testament. Jesus' teaching certainly had new elements to it. There's progressive revelation, and it certainly was in addition to the Old Testament, but it never for a moment contradicted the Old Testament. It was in perfect alignment with the Old Testament Scriptures, Those who love the God's will revealed there, recognize it in Christ's words. Then verse 18 tells us that this faith commitment enables people to assess the motivation of the teaching. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Self-appointed teachers with a self-constructed message are after one thing, self-praise from others. They have a message tailored to bring them maximum praise and attention to self. Man-made doctrine is as malleable as a wax nose, which you can form and shape in whatever way you want in order to achieve its ultimate aim, the praise of man. That's what characterizes all false teachers. They not only have a message of their own making, it's unto the ends of their own glory. Nobody invents a message which isn't going to bring some kind of benefit of reputation or attention or praise. It would be futile to do otherwise. So you can say self-glory seekers produce a message from themselves which will achieve their own glory. How different Jesus is than this. He didn't go up the way his brothers proposed. His goal was never to win the praises of men. And the very fact that Jesus willingly loses this multitude of disciples and continues teaching the same message testifies Jesus was not after the praises of men. He had unmixed motives in his teaching. He was driven by one thing alone, the approval and glory of His Father. And so God glory seekers declare a message given to them regardless of the results, for the approval of God alone. And those who have a heart of faith which loves God's will and love, loves God's glory, they recognize it in Christ when they see him just survey the landscape of our world today, even so many of the popular preachers that are out there, what draws a crowd is not a definitive exposition of the text of scripture to make the mind and the heart of God clear. It's not what draws the crowd. It's the person who comes with novel ideas. It's the person who has agendas which accord with what society tells us is most significant at the moment. They come with diagnoses of our condition and solutions that accord with the values of this world. They shape biblical doctrine to align with what the world says is important, like social justice and things like that. Rather than declaring the word of God, the mind and heart of God, despite the responses of the world. The world receives the world. And they will not receive Christ or his words because they do not have this kind of heart. That's the point. And so Jesus concludes in verse 18, declaring that he is authenticated as true and without falsehood or without unrighteousness in him. Because if his devotion to the praise of God and speaking only the words of God, devoted only to the glory of God, is governed by one thing, the doing of God's will, therefore he is True. He's reliable. He has unmixed motives. He's not tampering with God's word. And while this is perfectly modeled by Jesus, believers, all of you in here, are called to walk in the same footsteps as him, especially teachers. Got a few passages we could go to. For sake of time, go to 2 Corinthians really quickly. Paul tells us that this same kind of character. And concern for the praise of God alone, it characterizes true preachers and it authenticates their message. Look at Second Corinthians chapter two, verse seventeen really quickly. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ that's how Paul brought his message not as a peddler of God's word but under the sight of God it's the only thing that mattered now flip over to chapter 4 look at verse 2 but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, dilute it, make it more palatable, more fitting. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves. Paul commends his message by this very act of bold statement, not tampering with God's word despite the consequences. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what Christ is doing. And he models for every one of us here. The message is authenticated even by the motivation of the preacher. Such a method commends the motivations of the preacher and his reliability. That brings us now to verse 19. Jesus explains that the source of God's revealed will is the law. <clears throat> Look what he says in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? So, if those who desire to do God's will are able to perceive Jesus' teaching, where do people that desire God's will come from? How do you know God's will? Where is it? It's in the law. Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses. Much to this crowd's surprise, Jesus is showing them that they, in fact, don't keep the law of Moses. They are not those who desire to do God's will. Look at the rest of the verse, 19. 19. Has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? So Jesus' point is that his words perfectly align with God's revealed will. These people who are rejecting him do not keep God's law. And he gives evidence. Look at the rest of the verse. Why do you seek to kill me? Murder was a violation of the sixth commandment. These people do not keep the law. Well, that brings us now to the second section, whereas verses 14 through 19, Jesus grounds the credibility of his teaching in its alignment with God's will. Now he illustrates his perfect alignment with God's law and the crowd's failure to do so. So in verse 20, the crowd hears him say this, that they don't keep the law and that people are seeking to kill him. In verse 20, they say, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you crowd accuses Jesus of demon possession and paranoia. The Jews here are uh, from all over the Roman world. They probably are not aware that the Jewish leadership is plotting to put Jesus to death which they've been doing for a very long time now. So as far as they're concerned, Jesus is paranoid. He's self-absorbed. All they can think about is people killing him and nobody's really after him. That on top of the fact that he just called these seemingly faithful Jews, people that don't keep the law. So their explanation is, you have a demon. They blaspheme him. And so in response to that, in verses 21 to 24, Jesus demonstrates his perfect fulfillment of the law. Look what he says. This is the climax of the passage. This is where it's been building the whole time. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. He's referring here back to the sign that he did in chapter 5. Remember the lame man who was by the pool for 38 years in this condition? and In the instant Jesus speaks, and the man is restored to perfect health. But you remember he did that on the Sabbath, and that upset the Jews Fiercely. He did the sign quietly. Only the man knew about it, but words certainly got out. This crowd, Jesus assumes, even knows about it. And Jesus brings this sign up that he did about a year ago. He brings it up in order to illustrate his point that he fulfills the law and that these Jews do not desire to do God's law. He says they marveled at it. Again, this marveling is not a faith-filled response to receive Christ. The marveling was that Jesus did these things on the Sabbath. that he flaunted uh, disobedience to establish Jewish tradition. He performed a miracle on the Sabbath, and he told, tells this guy to pick up his bed and walk. That's what they were marveling at. And so Jesus proceeds to give them an illustration of which will reveal that he did not violate the Sabbath, but he actually fulfilled it in his son. Look what he says, verse 22. He says, Moses gave you circumcision. In other words, this is a piece of Mosaic legislation from the law of Moses, what we just saw in verse 19. And yet, ultimately, this pra- practice did not originate with Moses. Look what he says. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You can read in Genesis 17 where God commands Abraham that all the male descendants in his house ought to be circumcised. And because of this, it didn't even start with Moses, it started with the fathers. This ritual of circumcision took on a special weight. The Jews rightly concluded how it relates to the Sabbath. So the question is this, How does it relate to the Sabbath look at the rest of verse 22 Moses gave you circumcision not as from Moses but from the fathers and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath so what do you do if a baby boys eighth day the day on which he is required to be circumcised falls on the Sabbath which do you violate the circumcision law or the Sabbath and the Jews rightly concluded no You circumcise on the eighth day. That is more weighty of a command. One of the reasons, because it was established even by the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, you're correct. It would not be a violation of the Mosaic law to do so. In fact, it would be a violation not to do so. Now look at the rest of the verse. Verse 23, Jesus now goes from a lesser to greater argument. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? The principle established by circumcising on the Sabbath is now applied to the entire person, not just a part. If the lesser is true, circumcision, how much more appropriate was it that Jesus restored this whole man's body on the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus didn't violate the law in any way. But there's something we need to see here. The Jews very well could have argued, Jesus, that illustration doesn't work. This man was ill for 38 years. You could have waited until Monday or Sunday, right? There was no urgency to do it on that day. Not like a circumcision issue. There was not a pressing need for it. So there's something a little bit more going on here. Look back at verse 22. The ESV drops it out, but it is very significant. Beginning of verse 22 says, On account of this, on account of this, Moses gave you circumcision. What is he talking about? He's talking about the sign he just did. On account of what my sign illustrated, on account of my sign, Moses gave you circumcision. Remember back to chapter 5, Jesus' sign... Healing this man's body was giving a foretaste of the restoration that he as Messiah was bringing. In an instant, he transforms this man's body to give you a taste of the transformation of the entire creation Messiah was going to bring. Transformation of human souls in the new birth. And transformation of creation as the Son of God. That was the point of the sign. And Jesus here says, on account of this, on account of this renewal of all things, Moses gave you circumcision." In other words, the circumcision command looked forward to and anticipated the restoration of the entire person and the entire creation. Think of other places in the Bible It talks about circumcision of the heart. The external symbol was simply a sign that was meant to picture an internal reality. Restoration of the soul and a restoration of the creation that was coming. D.A. Carson said it this way. It was on account of, such precisely, of precisely such thorough renewal that Moses gave the circumcision law. Jesus' work for restoring this man's entire body was a foretaste of the universal renewal Jesus was bringing. And as such, it was in full accord with the purpose of circumcision. But what about the Sabbath? The Sabbath day also looked forward to God's promised rest. And if circumcision fell on that day, it took the way your place. And it was appropriately carried out. Listen again to D.A. Carson. He says, Jesus' healing of the whole man thereby becomes a fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision on the very day that served as a signal of God's Old Testament purposes of redemption and rest. In other words, the Sabbath day was the most appropriate day for Jesus to do this sign. For in doing so, he was demonstrating that his work he's come to accomplish fulfills the very thing circumcision and the Sabbath was pointing to. Put it this way. So weighty was the institution of circumcision that it even overrided the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying that even more weighty is the work that he has come to accomplish that is appropriate to suspend the Sabbath regulations. Leon Morris put it this way. The true meaning of the Sabbath and of circumcision is seen in Jesus' action. He is not transgressing the law of Moses, but fulfilling its deepest meaning. And had the crowd and had the Jews really had a heart that loved and desired to do God's law, that knew the heart of his law at this level, they would not have condemned Jesus. They would have seen that his works actually fulfilled the law Moses brings us to number three. He declares their failure to judge according to God's will. Look at verse 24. Do, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They are angry with him for his violation, but it reveals that not people who do God's will, they're breakers of the law, evidenced in their anger. Once more, D.A. Carson says, If their approach to God's will were one of faith, they would soon discern that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker, but one who fulfills the Sabbath, and circumcision. The heart is fundamental. The heart of faith. It's Christ, he fulfills it all. So this is one of the reasons why people reject him. It's not because he abolished the law. It's not because he contradicted it. It's because they fail to have hearts of faith. So I have a few closing implications here. Any questions, comments before we wrap up? Yes, Bob? I have a question. Uh, I knew in PCA circles or Presbyterian the circles they'll often refer to circumcision as being carried through <laughs> and then it's a sign or a symbol of they use it for in- intimate baptism justification. Yep. Is this a a verse that we could go to to kind of negate that, or is it not really that clear here for that? Sure. Um, Yeah, I think there's certainly principles involved. Um, I'd say one of the main reasons I don't think Presbyterians are correct, it's a hermeneutical issue, um, they miss the uniqueness of the New Covenant. Um, The New Covenant people is not like the Old Covenant mixed uh, where everyone had the sign of the covenant and only a few uh, were actually possessors of it new covenant is radically different everyone in the new covenant um, is a member of the new covenant um, and they have the sign of it which I would say is, is baptism not circumcision or infant sprinkling um, but he certainly does fulfill circumcision here um, so yeah that's a good point so, yeah, really good. questions comments not an easy passage for sure, uh, but profound nonetheless. Speaking yeah. of not easy, I'm curious about um, trying to wrap my mind around the Jesus' statement that he's speaking not from himself, mm-hmm. from the Father, but mm-hmm. then also the statement you made where he says, he consistently says, yeah. about the Sermon on the Mount, that I say something. Yeah. So there's that, that yep. the tension, I guess. He is speaking with his own authority, Yes, speaking with the Father's authority. <laughs> yep, and it is a, it is a tension, but um, it really is a good illustration of his place in the Trinity. He is very God of very God. He deserves the same honor as the Father. He has the same authority as the Father. And yet as a son, he's in complete dependence on his Father, carrying out not his own agenda, not a single work, not a single word. That was not what was first given to him by the Father. And So he's the Father's agent. And he's the unique son of God. Um, so, yeah, it's a beautiful sort of balance between, between those. That's good. Your thoughts? Yeah. So, according to, so you would say when Jesus said that the healing of the man's body is according to the custom of circumcision, and that's pointing to physical circumcision is the sign of the future spiritual circumcision that God's going to do to the hearts of his people, which is pointing to the work of redemption when we are like, returned once again to God's presence and we have both like, heart and body that's what Jesus I think is. it is. I think Jesus is saying the, one of the main purposes of circumcision in the Old Testament is to be a sign pointing to the future reality of God's restoration of all things. And Jesus' work is not only in line with that, Jesus has come to restore all things. So how much more appropriate is it that he do it on the Sabbath? The very day that's Anticipating the final rest of God's people. So. Questions, comments? Anything else? All right, we're over time. Um, leave you with this. No, believe, and rejoice in the glory of Christ. It fulfills it all, guys. Rejoice in him. Glory in him. Know his glory here. Know it's behind a rejection of Christ. There's nothing deficient in him. It's the hearts of people. Unbelief. Finally, brothers and sisters, imitate Christ in his devotion to the Father. Refuse to allow the world to cause you to tamper with God's word, to delude it. Remember, you stand and fall before God alone. Fear not man. Follow Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your word, for its clarity, for its power. Thank you for Christ, the fulfillment of it all. Thank you for a heart that sees that even that is a work of grace. You gave to me a heart that the desire to do the truth and receive Christ. Praise you. Do that in the lives of those around us who do not believe. Help us be bold and faithful regardless of their responses to the message. We love you, Father. Prepare us for the service to come. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright guys, you're dismissed. If you were not there Wednesday and want one of these articles passed out, we're going to talk about it this coming week.